it seems like doing accidental podcasts is kind of our thing. Well, because we can't really resist not talking about cars or not talking about tech. Right. So one way or another, both of these things is going to happen. We've been doing accidental car podcasts in the after show after ATP, but then usually you don't put them in the actual after show. So it's kind of like a live only, like a reward slash punishment for the live listeners <laughs> that get the air to talk about cars. Indeed. And, and this one is, is actually very special because we have a special guest. Hello. Hi, Dave. <laughs> Nailed it. And we're done. Comedic timing is my specialty. Well, so we have the very famous underscore David Smith with us. And there's a particular reason that those of us who pay attention have already figured out. We have an agenda tonight. Shockingly. Shockingly. We actually do have a plan on the Accidental Car Podcast. So the three of the four of us actually did something fun about a week ago, and one of us was a curmudgeon and didn't. Now, which of us would have been most likely to elect not to have fun? It's not a, being a curmudgeon. We've already <laughs> went over this. It was an incredibly wise decision, and I'm very proud of myself for making it, because I would have been so screwed if I had gone. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true, but I'm going to continue to make fun of you for the rest of time. So, Casey, what were you doing when the Apple event was happening in which Mavericks was announced and released? I do believe I was driving somebody else's M3 at speed around a racetrack. What were you doing, Marco? I believe I was doing the same thing. Underscore? I was right behind you. Well, I wouldn't say right behind. <laughs> true story. That's a very <laughs> true story. So what we're referring to, for those of us who aren't keeping track, is that uh, Underscore and Marco and I decided to go to BMW M Performance School, the two-day version. And this actually all started, believe it or not, with Underscore. So do you want to kind of tell the origin story? I mean, so it all just got started. It was uh, this last May, I turned 30, so became an old man. And as part of that, uh, one of the things I've always wanted to do is, or maybe take a step back and say, in, in my normal life, I, I drive a 2005 Toyota Corolla, which is a car I love. It's the only car I've ever owned. And that's my history with cars, though. And one of the things I've always wondered about is what it's like to drive a car that's not a very you know, low-power, eco you know, economic, economical vehicle. And so I was like, well, why don't I try? I always wanted to go to one of these kind of schools. And so for my 30th birthday was the plan. I was like, oh, I'll do what I'll do as my sort of 30th birthday as present to myself or for my wife. And so then the, the next step became to try and work out if I could find people who uh, would be interested in doing such, such a thing. And surprisingly, I was able to convince by a lot of cajoling and arm twisting Marco and Casey into coming along with me. Whereby a lot of cajoling and arm twisting, you mean you asked us, hey, do you want to go to two-day M performance driving school? And I think the two of us said, um, yes. Exactly. I think both me and Casey were just on the edge of just wanting to do this and just never having a specific excuse or reason to do it at a specific time. And you gave us that. Yeah, exactly. Now, John, what was your excuse? My excuse for not going is super expensive. I hate the travel and the OS X was coming out around that time. Is that all? I mean, I, I like yeah. I think about it now. Like, I, I know you guys had a lot of fun and everything, but think of all the extra money I have to spend on my Mac Pro. <laughs> when Marco and I are, you know, talking about our fancy new Mac Pros, Casey, you're going to be like, 
I don't, I don't want to get one of those stupid computers. It costs so much money. Well, you would have had all that money if you hadn't, you know, spent it on driving around. But seriously, I did. I did seriously consider it for a long time. So much so that I talked to my wife about it. She said you can go if you want. And I really thought about it. Like, you know what? Maybe I should just do this. But I thought better of it in the end. I'm I'm actually impressed that you got that far. I, As am I. I assumed that you basically immediately vetoed it in your head and never even bothered asking anybody. No, no. I, I mean, it's like, it's like uh, you know, it's like the youngster said. Uh, you figure, well, what, <laughs> you want to see what it's like to drive the big fancy cars that you're never going to own. And if you don't do it now, when are you going to do it? Like, when am, am I going to go do it myself? No. Then, you know, a bunch of people who I know are going, that's the time to do it, right? Uh, but no. But no. Well, we were very disappointed not to have you with us, John. However, we had a pretty good time. And so I, I don't know what the appropriate way to recap the trip is, um, but maybe I should give the very, very quick blow-by-blow blow of kind of what the schedule was, and we can dig into the specifics afterwards. So Marco either got volunteered or volunteered, I'm not sure which one it was, to drive down from New York. Well, you gave me an excuse to drive an awesome car for a few hours. You're welcome. For a lot of hours. Uh, well, well, you guys <laughs> drove a lot of the hours, and also... It doesn't, it, you know, similar to how easily it was to convince me and Casey to do this in, at all, it's pretty easy to convince me not to fly somewhere that's within driving distance because flying is just such a pain in the butt. I will avoid it, not out of fear, just out of, I just hate it. And so, uh, yeah, this didn't take much convincing. Right. So Marco drove down on, well, I guess it was last Saturday. Uh, no, I'm sorry, the Saturday before last. It doesn't really matter. He drove down on a Saturday. And... Picked up underscore outside D.C., and then the two of them drove to Richmond, where I am. We all stayed the night in Richmond on that Saturday night. Sunday, we woke up, got uh, breakfast, and then drove to Spartanburg, South Carolina, which is where the BMW factory is in the United States. And what, what do they build there? Is it X3 and X5? Is that right? It's, a, it's some of the X's, if not all of the X's. So they build some of the X's there, which is of no surprise, given that Americans love their SUVs. So on Sunday, we drove down, we had dinner at the hotel in which BMW assigns us to stay, and then Monday and Tuesday, we spent all day driving in basically a quarter million dollars worth of M cars per person, and then Tuesday evening, we drove back to Richmond, and on Wednesday, I went to my J-O-B job, and Marco and Dave returned home. To their lives of leisure. Exactly. Those of us who have J-O-B jobs had to go back to work. Those of us who don't really have jobs could do whatever we wanted. It must be tough. It really is. It really is. <laughs> and Virginia bagels are better than Montreal bagels. Ooh. Big words. I agree, but big words. <laughs> Why were you getting bagels in Virginia? Whose idea was that? Well, what else are you going to eat for breakfast? I don't know. Hush puppies? <laughs> There is a Sonic drive-in about five minutes from my house, which we could have gone to. They got Waffle House down there, right? Yes, they have Waffle House and Denny's and all those sorts of fattening, terrible things. Unfortunately, Waffle House is not new to me, at least, because I'm from Ohio, and it's everywhere in Ohio. People think it's only a southern thing, but Ohio steals a lot of things from the south and tries to act like they're normal. And uh, <laughs> Waffle House is so common in Ohio that uh, my, my friends and I in high school used to go to it all the time at like, you know, one in the morning because it was open and nothing else really was. And we would go to this one that was off of a, a, an off ramp off of Interstate 70 where there's, they get so much truck traffic and truckers, I guess, like the Waffle House so much that there's one on both sides of the street so that no matter which side you get off with the truck, you can just pull right into a parking lot and then pull right back onto the highway easily. And there's enough business that 
two Waffle Houses across the street from each other can stay in business. That's Ohio for you in one little story. So you miss it. Oh, God, so much. The Waffle House is just so <laughs> incredibly something. Uh, <laughs> it's there. It's so incredibly there. Well, to back up a step, uh, the bagels in Virginia are nowhere near New York bagels. However, I have found a place that is as good an imposter of a New York bagel as one can reasonably expect 500 miles from New York. And, and Marco, while he is not an official New Yorker, he is an imposter New Yorker, and I think you can vouch for me on this issue. It's named like Mountain View or something? What? No, the name of the place is Cupertino's. Oh, that's right. Come on, man. Anyway, it's very good. So yeah, so we uh, we went to the M School, and it was pretty fantastic. And it was funny because most people who go to the school, I have to imagine, drive down in Corollas and Accords and, I don't know, 328s and things of that nature. Well, what did we roll to BMW M School in? An M5. We were suffering, to say the least. Although, as it turns out, there were others that did the same thing. How many other M5 drivers were there there? Like three? There were two others in our hotel, at least, and both of theirs were way cleaner than mine. <laughs> well, they also drove quite a bit less, I do believe, to get there. But yeah, but even Underscore drove the M5, did he not, on the way down? Yeah, that was. I was actually a little bit glad, because I was a little bit concerned that coming from a rather, I don't know, a pauper background of my under underpowered toyotas and japanese cars that i'd be a little bit into like the just sort of like on monday morning i'd be sat down in front of a, an m5 be like here's the keys or i guess there aren't actually even really keys here's the magic <laughs> thing that starts the car push the button and on off you go and so i was a little bit i was glad that i was able to get sort of get through the initial like pre-flight and stuff in marco's car and then just drive for a little bit on the interstate to get used to it before it actually counted. Sounds like uh, Marco pulled a Tom Sawyer on you two. Hey, come and paint the fence. It's really fun. He got you guys to basically chauffeur him, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we didn't have to do all the driving. I mean, driving driving in a fancy car is fun, but at a certain point, you're just hours and hours on the interstate, and that's not fun. Well, that's kind of the idea. Like, that's that's one of the reasons why why I wanted Dave to drive. I mean, he volunteered, but, you know, why, why I made Dave drive um, the first leg from his house to Casey's because I wanted to ease his fears about these incredibly powerful cars because the fact is you yeah i mean there's some you know ridiculous cars like ferraris are, are pretty hard to drive normally at, at low speed just because of their gearing and, and clutches and everything but uh but i wanted to show that sports sedans are still sedans and they're still made for the most part not to go on tracks you know most people who buy them don't take them on tracks as far as i know uh and they're in, you can be you can drive these things normally every day and they just behave like normal cars. Just when you hit the gas really hard, they behave a little bit differently. So, Dave, how would you describe the difference between the M5 and your daily driver? It's bigger. Um, in The crazy thing is, in normal use, it is surprisingly similar um, in that... Oh, I I know it's it's terrible, but it, it it's very <laughs> comfortable. It has a it, it massages your buttocks while you drive it, which is <laughs> which is very unsettling. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a lot of fun. It's, it was the interesting thing, the, the, the two things that I noticed about it, the, well, the biggest thing that I noticed in it, just from driving it that I would, that I miss now going to my, you know, going back to my old Corolla is that it doesn't have things like a heads up display and a lot of kind of the new, the sort of like the, the newer, fancier technology that is just kind of fun in, when you're driving or just makes it a bit more useful. And it is a little bit intoxicating that you can, at, at any point you can 
suddenly like if there's a gap in front of you that you'd like to be in you can instantaneously be in it uh in a way that you know there, there's no pause or hesitation so it kind of forces a little bit of decisiveness into your driving style which is certainly a little bit of fun so you're saying this uh bmw turns you into a kind of a, a jerk on the road <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily a jerk but it definitely i think it, it definitely changes a little bit the way that you have to view driving because <laughs> you view the other cars as prey <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's it's like if you I don't know, I guess I'm I'm not a particular I'm not particularly big on firearms or guns, but I imagine it's like the difference between if you have a, you know, a small little 22 rifle or if you have a bazooka, right? You have to be careful about what you're going to point it at. Um in a different way than um uh, you you would otherwise because if you put your foot on the gas, like if I put my foot on my gas in my little four-cylinder car and I jam it down, I'm not going to go anywhere particularly quickly i'm still going to be where i was a few minutes you know a few seconds ago uh, you know a little bit later whereas in this it's you know you're instantaneously you know you just jump 15 20 miles an hour and so you have to be much more conscious about what you're doing you should try downshifting first in your camera oh wait automatic sorry (laughs) that's true that's right it's because i'm a cord camry rivalry going here it's a corolla though oh corolla that's right well I feel bad for you. I say as I drive home in my 11-year-old Honda Civic. So, yeah. Well, I guess we're... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, you two are, are brothers in your own special way. So, yeah. So so we get to this BMW M school after having driven five and a half hours. Oh, I, I was part of five and a half hours of the drive from Richmond to Spartanburg. There was a two-hour drive from Dave to me and what, like a four and a half, five-hour drive from Marco to Dave. Is that right? Yeah, about that. Yeah. So it, it was it was a hike, but it was very worth it. We were on Interstate 85 for forever and a day, and before that, Marco and Dave were on Interstate 95 for forever and a day. But we ended up in Spartanburg, and so come Monday morning, we get on a bus from the hotel to the, to the BMW factory. And we get in the classroom, and we see greeting us BMW M School two-day course, day one. And we do a little bit of classroom instruction about... Uh, all sorts of things about weight transfer, about finding the apex, finding the turning point. What, what was the uh, exit point? I forget the term for it, but something like that. Is it turnout? Turnout. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, so we get a little bit of cas- classroom instruction. Track out, I think. Track, I mean, whatever it was. So well, you could tell we were paying close attention during the classroom portion because really all we wanted to do was get in the cars. So for the two-day M school, the first day is just general, here's what oversteer is, here's what understeer is, here's how to find the racing line, here's how to find the apex or cornering point, I believe they called it, here's how to, how to drive in general. And all of these things on both days were happening in M3s, which were E90 M3, or E92 M3s, which were, I don't know, an MSRP of like $80,000. They were in an F10 M5s, which have an MSRP of like $100,000, and I don't know the designation for the M6s, but they're, they list for like $120,000. So all told, we have like $200,000 or $250,000 of BMWs basically assigned to us. And there were 15 people in the class. We were split into three groups of five. And so our group, naturally, was uh, Marco and Dave and myself, and then two other people who were very, very nice. Uh, and, and we basically spent the entire two days together, the five of us. And it was unbelievably fun. And it all began with taking M3s out onto a skid pad. So, Marco, would you like to tell us about what the skid pad was all about? Well, officially, it's, it's an exercise to uh, teach you what understeer and oversteer feel like. 
uh, how how to avoid them at first, and then how to create them if you want to, and then you know how to regain control of your car uh, in these situations. In reality, it's about drifting, and because <laughs> you know they do instruct you on those things, but the idea is to finish the instruction of those quickly so that you can get to the fun drifting part. This was my second time on a skid pad. The first time I was very bad at it and didn't really and didn't do any drifting because I was having enough trouble figuring out the the oversteer correction. For whatever reason, I don't know why, but this time it just kind of clicked for me, and so I figured out the the oversteer very quickly, and then was able to do some drifting, and it was pretty fun. It was a really cool experience because you know usually you are not told to please lose control of your car right now, and <laughs> and even if you do lose control of your car in, uh, unintentionally, uh, usually your car's traction control comes on and says, "Yeah, that's not going to happen." Um, but in this case, we are on a a wet and constantly being sprayed down, uh, polished concrete pad, driving in a tight circle uh, with a 400 horsepower rear wheel drive car with a traction control turn all the way off. And so it, we were able to uh, kick the rear end out at like 20 miles an hour. And uh, it was really cool. Um, what do you think of it, Casey? So I had previously, uh, a couple of cars ago, had a rear-wheel drive 300ZX, which was not the turbo version, and was very underpowered. But coming around a turn, I was able to, if I stood on the gas, get a little bit of induced oversteer and control it reasonably well. When I was on the skid pad in the 400-horsepower M3, I got a lot of oversteer with very little control of any of it. And it's funny, after having had two uh, all-wheel drive cars how hard it is for me to go back to controlling a rear-wheel drive car in power-on oversteer. And I spun constantly, and I felt like a moron, but I did learn a lot. And, and I really learned a lot about understeer, actually. So oversteer is when the back end comes around when you don't expect it to, or perhaps when you do expect it to. And understeer is when you're trying to turn, but the car is just kind of sliding out of the turn when you don't want it to. And I did learn a lot about what understeer feels like and how you can better judge when it's about to happen. But this is all coming from someone who has had a rear-wheel drive car in my life before. One of us, however, has never had a rear-wheel drive car. So Dave, what did you think about the skid pad? The skid pad, I think it was actually, it, from all the things that we did, I think it was the exercise or the thing where I think I actually learned the most practical knowledge. So the thing that I think will actually improve my driving just in, in normal day-to-day experience, because I think prior to this, I've only ever lost, like actually lost, sort of lost control or lost traction of my car a couple of times. And usually it's in very bad, you know, very bad, uh, driving, you know, driving surface situations where, you know, very rainy, very wet, um, maybe a little icy, that kind of thing. But it was interesting to see how quickly you could develop, I guess, like almost like the muscle memory to get yourself out of that situation. Um, when you're, you know, when you, when you, you sort of, you lose control of the car, whether the front or the back and how, after you're just doing, after doing it, whatever, 10, 15 times, you're able to very quickly be catching yourself. And that was reinforced, actually, we'll probably talk about it later, but later on during the week or during the, the couple of days where I'd be, if I, met, if I messed up a line or something and I, I actually just, you know, genuinely created one of these two things, I was able to correct it before I f- realized it was happening. And so in that sense, it was kind of interesting. I mean, beyond just the fact that it was kind of a crazy experience to the first time 
it's like you just get you know sort of set, sit sit down in a car it's like follow me out to the skid pad and now i want you to jam your foot into the gas on this super slippery surface and the first time of course like i think the first time you did i just spun around in a circle um but it was an interesting experience to kind of get get a feel for what the, what a, how a car actually responds at the limit like that where normally you either would have to be going sort of moronically quickly to do that or you, in, a, in a circumstance where the road conditions were just terrible and so doing it in a way that yeah you're only going 20 25 35 miles an hour and still being able to do it was just a really constructive activity i think you just need snow that's all you need you need snow in a parking lot <laughs> people who live up in the north i mean i, I haven't driven rear-wheel drive car i think maybe ever or maybe the mini what about your volvo well yeah i guess that can 80 like 80 horsepower anyway but but in the snow i'm very experienced taking front wheel drive hondas around in circles and snow because when it's when they haven't plowed the parking lot and you're there and there's no one else there you, you do a couple donuts you know slide around i mean you can't help it and and you can do that at like three miles an hour because it's just completely slick and covered with you know pack down ice and snow so uh, that's something that people in the south miss out on <laughs> i will say also before we leave the skid pad topic that uh this was this was the exercise especially the first time people are on the skid pad it's the exercise where people fail the most you know you you've tried to correct and then you spin around uh and then you got to stop and turn around and start again yep and the instructors handled this amazingly well like they're very encouraging it's not you know they and they explain this to us most of the people who go to the school are not necessarily car nuts a lot there's a lot of like corporate groups there's a lot of people who are taking delivery of bmw there and do do like a one-day thing like this um they, they have a lot of novices that go there and so they're not only are they tolerant of novices but they're they're very encouraging and they're very patient with you and and they they explain things very well when you are doing it wrong and they're they're, they're encouraging enough to say all right try again you know and it's it was a very, very nice mood, and I had this both with this one I did and the thing I did last year at Lime Rock, which was this, um, a different portion of the same team that put it on the event. Um, both times, the, 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 uh, the instructors are just really, really good for novices, especially. Yeah, I mean, I think I can re- just reiterate that coming from having no experience with this type of thing and honestly being a little intimidated about whether I should even do it in the first place, that I kind of had this fear going into it that I just you know, be completely out of my league from, you know, from the start. And it wouldn't be fun because the whole time it would be sort of, it's that sort of, if I, you know, if I showed up at some professional sports team practice and tried to do a workout, I just would be destroyed. Like it would, whereas with this, I felt, I would love to see that. It would be, it would be, it would be comically bad. Whereas I think what they were able to do here is they're very able to, I think, quickly judge your, your skill level based on where you, where you're coming from. And then they're just like, well, I'm just going to teach you whatever, whatever 10% beyond what you're capable of now. I'll be encouraging you on that. And once you get that, we'll do the next and we'll do the next. And I just always felt that it was, it, it, it's, it's a, you know, you didn't need to be somehow you know, already know all the things, which makes sense, I guess, in the sense of what's the point of the school if ever they expect you to know what you're doing before you get there. But it was definitely kind of a nice, a nice experience that you didn't, you know, they, they, there was no assumption. I mean, it's almost a little bit insane that they just sort of let you, they, you know, here's this very overpowered, you know, expensive car go off and, you know, drive around on a, on a slick surface with basically no you know, instruction prior to that beyond some of the stuff that we'd done in the classroom. But it was basically just, you know, sort of here it is, go. And from there, they were just kind of able to get, you know, sort of build build your confidence up from there. 
they also put a really high level of trust in you. Like for a lot of the exercise books we'll get to, um, they just, you know, most of the time you're just put in a car and they can say, all right, you know, here's how you put the car and drive, go. And, and they're not like babysitting you or giving you tons of instructions. So it kind of, it kind of plunges you into the deep end with like, oh my God, I'm suddenly driving a very expensive car with not a whole lot of instruction before I got into it. Um, but it, they trust you, you, you know, Everyone's adults. They they know that you've driven before, and they know you know they know that you're not going to like intentionally wreck this giant expensive car with you in it. Yeah, and as it turns out, one of the three of us actually did sort of kind of wreck one of the expensive cars. That's an overstatement. So the next thing we did was a cornering lesson, which taught us about you know where is the where is the apex? Where do you corner? Uh, how do you leave a corner? How do you enter a corner? It was a lot about – there were a few things that I took from the course which were very interesting. Uh, firstly, it was that the apex is way further towards the back of the corner than I would have expected. Did you guys feel the same way or did you know that this was the way things were? I think that's right. I, 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 honestly, I never really thought about it in quite those terms. But I think it, it was interesting because all the corners were laid out with cones essentially to try and help teach you exactly what you're looking for. And it was definitely – it took a lot of practice to turn your, 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 my instinct is honestly, you're also, you're also fighting years and years of teach of driving in the, like the normal manner where you're, you're accelerating slowly, braking slowly and turning gently. And so teaching yourself that you can turn in much, much, much later than you actually would normally. And, and that's actually the better line. If you're trying to go around quickly, I think it was very interesting to kind of experience and see in a way that I, yeah, de- I definitely wouldn't have guessed that that's how, you know, that's how you take a corner that late and that sharply. Marcos played uh, racing games on video games, right? Have either of you two played uh, racing games? Mario Kart? Does that count? <laughs> not, not really a simulation level. Uh... <laughs> I have played a little bit of Gran Turismo in my day, but not a lot. And never seriously enough to really discover what the proper line through a turn is. Well, I mean, John, did you do you feel like you know the proper line to return? Because I I thought I did, and I clearly did not. Well, I don't like the simulation games, uh, but believe it. Or not, although I just said that you know, Mario Kart is not really uh, an accurate simulation. You you do learn the one thing you learn in Mario Kart because of the massive rubber banding from the enemies. Like they that people don't know what rubber banding is. That means they if you play very well, the AI plays very well. You know, to catch up to you, to never you can never leave them behind entirely, right? So it comes down, and things like Wave Race and stuff like that, these arcade-type racers that have no no relation to real driving, the one thing they do have in common is that you do eventually have to learn what the fastest line through the turn is because the only thing that's separating you from the relentless AI that's always going to be, like, you know, right on your butt is that you have to take the fastest line through the turn because once you get the AI cranked up to that, you know, really high level, if you make even the smallest mistake and go, like, a little bit wide or leave a little bit room or don't hit the apex... Or, you know, don't hit the power-ups and all the other crazy things. They'll, they'll punish <laughs> you and you'll lose the race. So if you get into Mar- playing Mario Kart against humans or, or the computer, you will eventually get that kind of punishing racing type experience of like, that turn was fine. I just missed it by just like that much. And now you're in second place. And so it, you eventually learn, yeah, where the thing is. Of course, what you don't learn is how it would be in a real car to break that amount and how much you have to apply pressure to pedals. Instead. I mean, you're just hitting buttons or whatever. But the lines are kind of similar. Although in a racing game with weapons like Mario Kart or my preferred <laughs> game of Wipeout, getting back on a straight line after a turn and being as straight as possible for as long as possible is actually a terrible idea because then people can hit you with green shells from behind. 
Yeah, like Mario Kart, it's a strange dynamic where sliding sideways makes you go faster, which is silly and, and unrealistic, but it sliding sideways takes away some control from your steering because you can't... First of all, you have to initiate the sideways slide, and then you have to control the slide. And in that respect, it's similar to what I imagine driving would be like, is that to, you know... You, to hit that line, to hit the line perfectly and to get your speed match and everything, it's not as simple as like do do kind of roll through the turn or whatever. Yeah, then you get the line, but you won't be going fast. To go fast and hit the turn at the same time is very difficult, and you don't have the kind of control you have if you like you would have if you're pulling into a parking lot or a parking spot or something like that. You have so many things are going on with the car at that moment that it's not so easy to just point the car at the line and shoot. You kind of have to sling the car and hope you you know everything is all right, so you're going to hit that apex. And if you're off, it's not like you can just steer back and get it because, you know, if you trace your line on the course, you'll have these strange wiggles and things will go bad for you and you'll end up mowing the grass and uh, bad things. <laughs> I will tell you, though, that I can drift like a champion in Mario Kart and I cannot drift like a champion in real life, as I found out. But I I'm with you. So, yeah, I think I think with two days of instruction, we all combined got maybe 10 straight seconds of drifting. <laughs> that's probably true i don't know i was looking through my uh footage which we'll get to in a moment uh and in the m5 on the second day i actually got a couple of decent drifts but i wouldn't say they were good drifts but uh yeah so so on day one uh, in the morning the second thing we did was this cornering uh course where we learned about the apex we learned how that that they really stressed looking where the car where you want the car to go not where the car is and that sounds really simple and silly, but man, I don't know about you two, but it was hard for me. And it took me until the afternoon at the earliest for that to really click. And for me to understand that if I'm trying to hit an apex where they pretty much tell you to do everything but run over the cone that they put on the apex as an indicator of where it is, it's very hard not to look at that and prevent yourself from hitting it. And instead, look further down the road and just have faith that your hands will figure out where to point the car. And eventually, if I forced myself to do that, to look down the road and just have faith in my hands, it actually really does work. But man, is it counterintuitive with everything I've learned. I don't know, Marco, did you feel the same way or was this like second nature for you? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, like David said earlier, a lot of, a lot of the difficulty in, in doing this well was overriding your instincts of normal driving because you know like they they teach and, and i don't I'm, I'm not an expert enough to know um whether this is you know how universal this is but they teach something called threshold braking which is you basically accelerate as hard as you can during the straightaways and then at the last possible second you brake as hard as you can before each turn <laughs> to slow yourself down to whatever speed you need to be and uh so it's just extremes like heart the 100 acceleration to 100 braking and then you turn and, and you you turn in a way that like you start out really wide on the turn and then you like cut in and hit the apex and then you like smooth your way out. And it makes sense why you do that and they explain why you do that. But because that is so unlike normal driving, uh, it was very it was very hard to to get like you it never became that instinctual i had to i had to like think about yeah, yeah. every move like okay hit that apex go to the turnout like i had to like it was like emulation mode i had to like think about every instruction i was doing <laughs> it, it never became like a fluent thing for me and i'm sure i'm sure that if i did this 
very frequently, maybe it would be. But one thing I thought was very interesting was on the last day, um, the main instructor had said that, and the instructors are all like, you know, racing drivers who are have often you know been pros or were, were pros for many years or still are pros and uh, have done lots of racing and and uh, and the instructor said that even still, like when he's when he when he does a long race, sometimes he'll get tired and he'll start and he'll he'll start forgetting to like look way ahead and and you know start forgetting some of the technique and start reverting back to automatic driving behavior for everyday use and he starts doing very badly and he so even this instructor who's been doing this for years and years and years and does it professionally even he can revert back to non-ideal behavior because these are against your instincts he finds himself driving to work like, wait, right. I'm going to work now. What, what's going on? <laughs> you, you ever it's do that true. when you're driving your car and suddenly you, you don't pay attention to where you're going and suddenly you find out you're going to work? Maybe maybe not Marco. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't drive to work, but yeah. I you know, drive to the store, drive to a friend's house. I do that all the time. Maybe some, I'm walking around my house and I, and I accidentally walk into the office. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like when I'm driving, driving my kids to one of their activities or something and I realize I'm, I'm on my way to work. And I'm like, no, no, this is not where the activity is. Stop going to work, autopilot. John, as someone who actually has a job, job, I totally understand what you're talking about. Don't listen to these two. Did they have uh, the breaking points marked out on the track for you in the beginning? Like a, a big a big cone? The whole time they had cones on for, for every every time there was like a, a point where you could get, get enough speed where you had to slam on the brakes, they would have like three two one cones like the like first a three then a two then a one um to tell you like you should really break you know in this range and you can figure out for yourself you know whether you want to break at the three or the two or whatever and uh, and every turn had the the turn in the apex and the, and the track out uh, all all marked with cones so every turn was coned the whole time uh so it was really it was not about you have to figure out what the best way through this is because they know that we're all amateurs, only there for two days. You know how much how much figuring out can we do in two days with our you know first time on on tracks? Um, they but so it was really more about technique and just like and f- learning for the very first time like oh this is how you drive on a track which is nothing like driving in the real world. So did they did they time your laps? Some of them in some instances. So you have to understand that the BMW Performance Center, which is the track at the BMW factory, it's a pretty big track by my measure, which is to say the only tracks I've been on are this and the Nürburgring, and it's nowhere near the Nürburgring, but as what I envision as a track, it was fairly big. And over the course of the two days, we were, there were three groups of five, like I'd mentioned earlier, all operating on different subsections of the track. And it wasn't until the afternoon of the second day that they kind of linked the entire track together to build one major track, for lack of a better word. I don't know how else to describe it. So, for example, on the – I'm going to call it the western half. It may not have actually been the western half. That's where the skid pad was, and that's where this big sweeping corner was, which they call the man turn or man curve. Uh, That's their name, not ours. And then on the eastern side of the track is where they initially set up a slalom, which which was on uh, Monday afternoon – and and there were there was a uh, corkscrew as well that we encountered either Monday afternoon or Tuesday morning, and so it wasn't until the end of the second day that they kind of linked the corkscrew and the slalom and the man turn and the skid pad all together to make one tremendous track. And man, that was fun. But I'm getting ahead of myself. All right. So Monday morning we did skid pad, we did cornering, we did handling, and then we had lunch. 
and lunch was nice but unremarkable. And I do feel like, because I don't want to leave this out, there were like six instructors for a total of 15 people. And what happened was we would we would have an instructor or two with us for any given event, if you will. And they would give us walkie-talkies, which I'm sure transmitted, but the point was not for us to talk back to them, but for them to be able to tell us what are we doing right, what are we doing wrong. And I, I really want to make it clear that these instructors, like Marco was saying, were unbelievably patient and unbelievably good. And it wasn't until the very last event of the second day that we realized how good they really were. But they were all incredibly, incredibly good. And they were of various ages. And all of them were very different and had very different styles. And very and they were very different. But all of them consistently were patient and courteous and kind. And I, I really think without that group of instructors, this experience would have been totally different. It's very clear that to be an instructor at, at this place, like they don't it isn't just like, well, you you can drive. Okay, you're in. Like, obviously, these these instructors are either are either picked for having these qualities or are, are trained extremely well and really pick it up and, and have a knack for it. Um, for for being not only able to to drive cars well, but to to explain and be patient with people and teach them how to do it. And and it's that's a skill. You know, being a good teacher is a very valuable skill that that is not. It does not come naturally to to many people, and the, these people all had it, and they were really good. Yeah. So, Dave, what did you think about the instructors as someone who? And I know you touched on this earlier, but as someone who was not terribly confident about what you were getting yourself into, I mean, do you feel like they made a difference for you? Yeah. I mean, I think the the interesting part, of course, is like the, it, it definitely oscillated a little bit between the times that they were, you know, sort of the encouragement, and then at the, the other times when it felt like. They're asking me to do something that I couldn't do. Like the number of times I heard things like, it's like, it's like more speed, Dave, more speed, more speed. <laughs> you're not going fast enough. Or the best, of course, more amusing one was you're in the wrong gear, which is great because I was driving in automatic mode. So that was, you know, it's like, I can't do anything. I can't, like, if, if you could hear what I'm saying in the car, I'm just yelling back at them. It's like, I know, but I can't fix it. So there's definitely it sort of oscillates between those things of, they're telling you it's like at some point it's 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 incur- it's great when they're telling you oh it's, this is it's like this is what you should be doing this is what you should be doing and at some point you're like that's great and you can do it and then every now and then they'll do something that's ask you to do something that's a little bit beyond what you can do and you're like i got nothing like i i appreciate what you're saying but you know i just i mean i don't it's like i don't, I don't have the confidence or the skill to be able to accomplish that so monday afternoon we started with the m5s in a timed handling course And the way this worked was we had half of the skid pad that we used in the morning and it was still wet. So if the skid pad is a big circle, we had a half circle. Uh, So 180 180 degrees of skid pad and it was still getting soaked. And the rest of the course was a regular road course, including some fairly fast bits. And it, it was funny because in the classroom right after lunch on Monday afternoon, they said to us, hey, listen. When you go and do the big timed lap in the M5, you have to understand the M5 has what, 550 horsepower and like 560 horsepower and a million torques from zero RPM. And even though you will come off the skid pad onto drive pavement, things may look dry, but the reality of the situation is your rear, well, all wheels, but particularly your rear wheels will still be wet. And one of the analogies that Donnie, the head instructor, used was 
imagine that there was that there is a string tied to the bottom of your steering wheel to the top of your right foot. So if you turn the wheel either direction, that string is going to be taut and it's going to force you to it's going to pull your foot off the gas pedal. And then as you bring the wheel back to center, that string will have a little more will have a little more slack and you can get back on the gas. And so what they said was listen, and they said this several times. You really need to be careful coming off the skid pad because even when you're on pavement that looks dry, it it may not be as dry as you think. Furthermore, as everyone is doing this course, all five of you are doing this course, and then the other two groups of five, either before or after you, this water that's only on the skid pad, it's going to get spread out. So that in mind, we took our M5s onto this course. And I should note that I believe on Monday, Marco, what color was your M5? Uh, I, I forgot. It must have been a good color, like black or maybe the orange or the blue. Dave, do you remember what color Marco's M5 was? I, I actually do. I was right behind him the whole time. I believe it was white. <laughs> you know, I thought it was white as well. And, you know, kids, if you don't think karma's real, whether or not you're religious, whether or not you believe in such hocus pocus, karma's real. Because Marco, for most of the two days, had white M cars. And I can tell you, nothing about this trip made me happier than Marco being in white cars pretty much the whole time. It was fantastic uh, i don't remember what you're talking about i'm sure you don't i've blocked it out uh-huh it wasn't white on the inside right marco <laughs> no not at all it was it was nice and black on the inside and that's the part i saw yeah that's it so anyway so we do this uh in the in the beginning of uh monday afternoon again we split up into three groups of three we all do different things but we ended up on this big lap first and so I don't recall exactly how many laps of it I had done. A lot. It, it, was, it was a few. Yeah, it was towards the end, I think. But I come off the skid pad in the M5, and I feel, I'm feeling pretty confident. And if you, as you come off the skid pad, you make a very slight right turn. There's a very small straightaway, and then there's a 90-degree right into a 90-degree left. So it's an S-turn. I come off the skid pad, and I get onto the dry pavement. And I think to myself, self... You're in the dry pavement now. You can give her. You can give her some boot. But you can what? Yeah, do you not watch Top Gear? Give her some boot. Yes. Do you not watch Top Gear? Come on. I, I can drop the hammer. They don't call it the trunk. They call it the boot. Oh my god. Anyway, so the <laughs> point being, the point being, I can stand on the gas. Is that better for you? Anyway, so I come off the skid pad. I'm on dry pavement, or so I think, and my tires are dry, or so I think, and I get on the gas a little too hard, and a little too aggressively. And next thing I know, the front of the car is pointed at a 90-degree angle to the road. And following that, just a mere moment later, the next thing I know, I am now in the grass and doing a 360 in the grass. And what I haven't mentioned yet is that in the lunch, right after lunch on Monday, they came around with M-badged USB keys, which ended up being 8-gig USB keys. And they said, hey, listen, we have this magical telemetry box in the trunk of every car. And we have a USB extension cord receptacle running into the center console of every car. As you get into each car, plug this magical USB key into the magical USB receptacle, and you'll notice that there is a camera pointed forward to see out the front window, and there's a camera on the A pillar on the passenger side pointed at you. 
And what ended up happening was they these magical telemetry boxes would record the two videos as well as telemetry for what you're doing onto this USB key. And so I have a video, which we'll put in the show notes, assuming we ever post this, of me spinning out in somebody else's M5 and going into the grass. And the really funny part of this is that right after I spin out, and at the very end of the video, because the videos automatically stop when the car stops, you hear... And that's the end of the video. So I think of both days, if I'm not mistaken, was I the only person that went off the track? Yeah, I was going to ask you how many other people uh, went into the grass <laughs> during that, I believe, during that time. I, I believe I was the only one. There were a lot of close calls, <laughs> but I believe I was the only one. You know, if, if, you're, if you didn't go into the grass, that probably means you weren't driving hard enough. Thank you, John. You know what I mean? Like, I, was, I would think, like, the, the whole thing you're trying to do in this, in this, you know, learning how to drive, like, a race car or whatever is, that, you know, you're always going to feel like you're going to a turn too fast. You're always going to feel like there's not enough room to break. You know what I mean? And, you, and, like, what you're trying to work your way up to is the point where you really don't leave yourself enough room to break and you really do end up you know understeering into the grass or you really do put a hit on the gas too much coming out of a turn and end up spinning it around so i think casey should wear his uh, lawn mowing adventure as a badge of honor <laughs> <laughs> now that would that's a very good point john that yeah maybe casey was actually driving the fastest so casey how did you do on the lap times well i don't believe did we ever hear times from this we did hear times <laughs> later and i know what you're driving at but I don't know that we ever heard times from this. So let me, let me come back to that. I'm not okay. trying to dodge, sure. but let's come back to that. Uh, but suffice to say, one way or another, I believe of the two days, I was the only one who went off. And when we got back to the paddock or pit or whatever you'd like to call it, uh, I, all of us got out of the cars and Dave walked up to me. And Dave, do you remember exactly what you said? I just remarked on how I was kind of impressed that you found some time to do some gardening in the middle of our intensive driving course. <laughs> exactly. Well, we get back and we're like, you know, we didn't know until we got out of the cars because Dave and I were not within uh, visible distance of seeing this. We didn't know who, you know, we just know somebody caused us to all have to stop for, for like 30 seconds while they figured it out. And uh, so we get out of the car and both of our cars are nice and clean. And we look at Casey's and it's covered in dirt. <laughs> what Why happened? was that? Casey have grass between his teeth? <laughs> no, surprisingly. Uh, nor did I have any in the uh, front grill. But yes, I was the one who achieved going off track for the entire two days. Now, there were some very close calls from others. And unfortunately, none of those people are Marco or Dave. But there were some very close calls. However, I was the only one who actually achieved going off the track and doing a spot of gardening. But that's okay. So Tuesday, or excuse me, Monday afternoon, we continued by doing another slalom and then, or it's actually, I'm sorry, it was a time course. And I think this is what Marco was referring to. The next thing we did was we took the M3s into this time course where we did a slalom. Then we did this hard break into a box that was as wide as two or three M3s, but only as deep as about one M3. And the mission here was to stop in the box and do the entire course as quickly as possible. And... If you went outside of the box, either because you stopped too, too soon or you stopped too late, then they would add time to your official time. So I think it was a two-second penalty if you stopped too soon or too late. And what Marco's driving at is, despite the fact that I tried to drive the doors off of this M3, I do believe Marco beat me by, a, what, like five-tenths of a second, five-hundredths of a second, one or the other? Is that right? Uh, it was very close. I mean, the funny thing was... There, there were a few events where the instructors timed everybody, 
and and then they 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 posted the results on a little sheet you could you know, like at lunch you could look at and uh and none of us were were spectacular. The funny thing was that between the three of us, you know we were driving very differently casey was was you know pretty good. I was sloppy. Casey was consistent. I was not. I had some laps that beat him, but I never had like you know a full event where I, where I beat him by a notable amount and Dave was driving like a Corolla owner. <laughs> and yet, the three of us all had extremely similar times. Like, it, it, that was one of, one of the most interesting, interesting things about this to me is that I felt like you, you feel like you're driving very differently out there. And then you get back and you see, oh, well, you know, there's actually a lot of ways to do this. And, like, if you start getting sloppy and start, like, you know, losing control here and there and kicking the butt out here and there for, like, a little, like, quarter of a second, um, it's really not faster. And the fastest way through the course is, like, the clean technique way. And so the three of us, like, we felt very different driving things, but we were actually doing almost identically. Dave, were you there when Derek was talking to us about this? Do you remember what he said? Yeah, I mean, I think he was talking a lot about how – I think he was – it is the broader lesson that – I think he, so if a lot of people come out to something like this and they think they're – you know, it's like they think they know what they're doing or they're just over overconfident and kind of ag- overly aggressive. And they'd be attacking the course with just, you know, they're throwing power at the problem, I guess. And like they're just trying to, as as much as they can, kind of brute force the, the solution to it. And so they're like as hard and the car is throwing the car around and it's not very controlled or clean. And where you have someone who's a bit more like me, which I can't say like I hit all the lines perfectly, but... I was typically going slower, and so I had much more time to get my lines tidy and get and sort of make fewer mistakes and try and do things a bit more textbook, if not a bit slower. But the reality is those two things, there's sort of this curve between where there's – what I'm doing is on one sort of side of the bell curve, and then it kind of peaks up at the sort of the optimal um, car control, which would be – it's you're both technically correct as well as quick, and then it starts to just slide off on the other side, just sort of just just as steeply, and you start to get overly powered, overly sloppy, um, and those types of things, and then they end up at exactly the same point that you're driving. And I think we saw this a little bit in some of the telemetry things where you know you're, I think Casey especially with you, you're on the throttle 100 percent, like you know you're f- like pedal pedal all the way down far more than I ever was, but the overall time doesn't it you know is only marginally different. Because at the because you're as a result of doing that you're having to throw the car around a lot more in ways that aren't actually productive. Yeah, it's not even so much I think the the maximum power. It's that if you are being aggressive and driving, you know, like like a butthead, you're probably over braking. <laughs> you're probably over braking too. So then you you build up all that speed, and then you're like whoa whoa whoa, and you scrubbed it off. But now you're going too slow, and so you got to push back on the speed and just you know that's. You're, yep. you're killing yourself by going too fast, too slow, too fast, too slow, too yep. fast, too slow. And, and if you had just taken the average of that speed and gone around the course like Dave, you would have a similar time. What you want to go is too fast and just barely slow enough not to go off the course and then fast again. Right, exactly. And one of the exercises, actually, I know this is skipping ahead, sorry, um, is uh, they, they do a, a two-car race called the Rat Race on, on a figure-eight-shaped skid pad. Actually, that's next. Oh, good. The idea is... Or was it was this on the figure eight? It was on the same course, but it wasn't a figure eight. It was just a big oval. Right. I guess the figure eight would be dangerous. You'd be crashing. <laughs> so it was an oval, and uh, the idea was the cars start at opposite points of the oval, 
pointed, you know, in the same direction, like everyone's going going counterclockwise, and you and you try to catch up with the other car. So you have to like gain a half a lap on them, basically. And it's on a skid pad, and you're in. We we did it in M6s, so it's you know massive power rear wheel drive car with traction control t- totally off on a skid pad. So it's actually an exercise in control and consistency because you have enough space to get some speed going in a straight line for a second, and then you have to immediately slow down and be able to turn without spinning out. And it was a really interesting exercise because. Like you again, like you would think that oh, if you can like power slide around, they'll get in front. No, actually, that's not the fastest way around. And uh, so we we get to the skid pad to do this event, and we first do a couple of practice laps. And the practice laps were me and Casey at first, uh, right? And uh, I think that's right. Yeah, and so we get on there, and oh, no, first it was me and Dave. And I I beat Dave after five or six laps. I was like a, I was like a car length ahead. It wasn't a, or a half a car length ahead. It wasn't a big difference, but I was I was ahead, so I won. Then they brought Casey on uh, to do a practice lap against me, and he just kicked my butt. Oh, are you sure? I thought you beat. I thought you might have beat me on the on the practice lap. Nope. Oh, so what okay. happened was, so so you beat me on the practice lap. And then, and, and then the instructor was like, all right, now we'll, we'll start for real. Casey, you can stay out there, and we'll add, one, you know, you know, we'll add the next person, and then whoever wins gets to stay, and we'll see who's left at the end. So first up, they put, um, they put on you know, the, the, the rest of the people, and there were five people in the group, so they put on four. Others, I was last. Casey beat every single one of them. He he was the master at this weird like skid pad race <laughs> of just like just just don't mess up, just stay consistent and just don't get sloppy. And I got on there. I was the very last person uh, left at the end. And I got on there and I was getting sloppy because he was gaining on me. And and the whole time you're hearing from the instructor over the radio, you're hearing, all right, Casey's now half car length ahead. Casey's now one car length ahead. So you're hearing how you're doing. And so my instinct to. Uh, to overcome that and try to try to like regain the the loss was to go faster and to get sloppier, which is exactly what you shouldn't do. And eventually, then Casey kicked my butt too. And this it was it was a very very clear and strong victory. And it was interesting how like not only was Casey good at something while driving a white car. <laughs> Because I believe you were you were in the white one this at this point. Yeah. So not only were you good at something driving a white car that was not a manual, but it, it was a really great exercise in like trying to get faster actually made me slower. You should have fired a green shell backwards. <laughs> I bet a lot of people still don't know you can do that. I knew you could do that. Come on, everybody, everybody knows you can do that. Everyone who's good knows you can do that. <laughs> no, the funny thing is, is that to be honest, I think easily three of the four victories were because the my opponent just got a little overzealous and spun out. And I know it's funny me being all smug about that after I just told you I went off in the grass and I was the only one who did so. But believe it or not, it was just me lasting long enough not to be the first one that spun out that I think got most of my victories. And Marco, I don't believe you had spun. I didn't spin, but I, can't, I, I definitely had a lot of oversteer towards the end when I was trying to catch up, so I, I was slowed down a lot. Right, but at the end of the day, really my victory was more about me just not screwing up first than it was about me having any sort of technical skill. Well, exactly. Like that's what Dave was saying and what John was saying. Like that's that's what succeeds in this kind of environment is like just just be, just drive consistently and not crazily and you'll do pretty well because as soon as you try to get crazy, you start losing control and losing time. So, that was 
day one. Dave, any other thoughts on day one? The only other thing that we did there that was a lot of fun was you did J turns, which is just kind of ah uh, yes, that was a lot which of fun. Is a complete is the kind of, it's one of those skills that I I hope desperately that I never need in actual life where I need to you know flip my car around when I'm being chased by bad guys or something. But that was <laughs> that was a lot of fun to to t- you know to take take an M3 and spin it around. It was definitely the fastest I think any of us have ever driven in reverse. Uh, maybe then we looked this up before something about how the BMWs don't have the dog tooth gears in reverse they don't make that terrible whine yes i think we talked about this on the regular series of neutral but uh but yeah so in case you don't know what a j-turn is basically the moral of the story is you you do about 30 miles an hour backwards and again the key is that we were on a skid pad here and in this case we were in m3s not the m6s we were talking about earlier uh and you i believe we were in m3s weren't we we were just for this Okay, so we were in an M3. We were in, the instructor brought an M3 out to the course, and we were all in M6s. And we got in the instructor's M3, and he's in the passenger seat, and we're in the driver's seat. And he says, all right, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get to the edge of the skid pad, almost in the grass. You're going to go as quickly as you can in reverse without skidding. And when I tell you to, you're going to whip the wheel to the left. The left. To the left. Remember that, Marco. It was the left. <laughs> yes. Yes, Marco. It was the left. No, no, no. Not your other left. The left. It was confusing. Uh-huh. So anyway, so you, you whip the wheel to the left, and he will operate the gear shift. All you have to do is whip that wheel to the left like your life depends on it. And every single one of us, all five of us, were able to to bang out a J-turn with some amount of skill, which, of course, really amounted to just us listening to the instructor and turning left, or in Marco's case, occasionally right, uh, when he told us to. So what were they doing with the shifter, putting you back into drive, I guess? They were flipping it into neutral. So the idea is you go really fast backwards, you turn really hard so the butt spins out, and the car just basically spins out so that it points itself forward and the inertia will keep carrying it forward slightly after you're done. So all you have to do as right before you turn is just disengage your reverse gear so that it, it doesn't start fighting against the inertia. What you wouldn't give for a clutch in that situation, right, Casey? Oh, amen, brother. But, you know, it is what it is. And so we, it was it was very cool, though. And, and we were able to, well, once Marco realized which direction was left, even he was able to listen to the instructor and bang out a J-turn, which I got to say was a tremendous amount of fun. So, Dave, I'm glad you brought that up. Why, why Did they tell you why they wanted you to steer to the left to do it as opposed to the other way? Oh, yeah. Well, because if you turn the other direction and you didn't stop, you would hit the spectators. Right, exactly. So it's not that left or right is really important. It just so happens that if you were in the car as you were backing up, all the spectators were to your right. Uh And so the idea is you whip the car to the left so that if you, just like Marco said, if you fly – you know, 20, 30 feet in the direction of perpendicular to where you were originally going, then at least you would drive into nothingness as opposed to driving into your newfound friends. So there's nothing about the dynamics of the car. It just has to do with the people, where the people were. Correct. You can do it in both directions. I was confused. Um, eventually, I'm like, all right, which way do you want the butt of the car to point? I will make it do that. <laughs> no, you're remapping. So you stop. Left, left turn. <laughs> Turn left into the gas station. Right, because you're, when you're in reverse, you're like, wait, I have to turn the wheel what direction? It, it was, I'm just, just tell me where the car should point, and I'll do that. And as soon as, I, as soon as he did that, and that's how I thought about it, it was perfect. Right. So after that, that was the end of day one. And then and at the BMW facility, they served us a nice German meal of, was it Spatzel or Schnitzel? I always get it wrong. I don't think we're even qualified to say. It was good. I don't know. It was German. 
the schnitzel because I don't think you had spetzel. It's like the little like uh, drops of pasta looking stuff. Whereas schnitzel is the breaded meat. I think. Come on, do we have, have any have any Germans in the chat room who can uh, real time correct us? In that case, it was schnitzel. It was schnitzel and two different kinds of sausages and sauerkraut and and, uh, and it was very it was very very good. And they had uh, they had an open bar with beer that i choked down because i'm not a beer drinker oh you volunteered to to have a beer desperate times call for desperate measures marco there were other options and you volunteered to have a beer well, it was wine or diet coke and as much as i love me a diet coke come on could i could add a water or sprite they had sprite <laughs> that's true they did have sprite oh what are you doing then <laughs> john you missed out you really missed out anyway well, it was a very good dinner, and we all got to socialize. And what was really nice, all, all jokes aside, what was really nice about the uh, entire experience was that everyone that, that we met, all 15 people and the five or six instructors, so call it all 20 people, they were all incredibly, incredibly nice. And some of them were very, very quick. And, well, obviously the instructors were, but even the, uh, the students, some of them were very quick. And some of them weren't. And they were all extremely nice. And there, there was a dad and a son that was there. There was a mother-daughter that were there, and all of them, every single person was extremely nice. It was really easy to socialize with everyone. There were a couple other M5 owners, and, and, I, and I don't mean this to be passive-aggressive towards Marco, but you know, your assumption is if you can afford a car like an M5, you might look down your nose at anyone who can't afford a car like an M5, and none of them were like that at all. They were all extremely nice and extremely approachable. And none of their cars were white. And none of their cars were white, which is why they were extremely not, no, just kidding. Uh, but it, it was really, really incredible. And so after after dinner, we were brought back to the hotel. We were able to stay up if we wanted to, but at this point, we were all exhausted, so we crashed pretty early. Actually, one quick note I was going to say about day one is that you can do it as a day one and as a one day or a two day course. And I think it was interesting having doing the two day course. In some ways, you do the whole one day course. And I would say if this is if you're someone listening to this who had actually consider going to this but for whatever reason could only do the one day like the two day was definitely have to say worth it worth it but the one day if you did just the one day it would have been an amazing trip still like you could it it would at the end of the first day it felt very satisfying very worthwhile and very useful and then like the second day just built on top of that yeah i would agree with that yeah i would say that day one was kind of theory and granted, there was application, don't get me wrong, but I feel like day one was more about theory, whereas day two was more was less about theory and more about application, which we're about to get into. But just like Dave said, if, if for whatever reason you can only swing a one-day course, be it because of time or because of finances or whatever, it's still worth it. It was still a tremendous, tremendous amount of fun. Yeah, after the one day, all three of us said to each other, like, if that was it, we'd be very happy. Yeah, Absolutely. So anyway, so getting into day two, day two is essentially the application of all of the basic skills and things that we'd learned the day before. And it was essentially just mostly just building up towards being confident enough to do what I just started calling their like their power lap or whatever you want to call it. But it's, it's the, the full course from end to end, um, which essentially in the morning, what we did is we split that split the course down into two sections, one of them sort of a higher speed course and the other one more of kind of a, a handling course. And so we start off in the morning doing what they refer to as their man corner, which is this very sort of long, gradual sweeping corner that you can take at relatively high speed and is a sort of 
you know, by it's it's it's, 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 a, it's sort of it's a hairpin turn in that you're you're going in one way and coming out the the opposite direction, but it's over such a long distance that you can carry a tremendous amount of speed through it. And so most of it was just trying to get confident at it, it, the hardest part, at least for me, on that is looking at a corner and going into a corner at I don't even know what it was, fifty miles an hour, and then turning your car and having that not feel completely insane. <laughs> You're exactly right. And it was, the, the corner was so big. It, again, it was like a 180-degree turn, but the radius of this half circle was tremendous. And so it was long enough that they basically told you, split this into two different corners. And what you had to do was grab one apex early on, fly out to the outside part in order to prep to get into the second apex. And then coming out of the second apex, you just got hard on the gas, hard on the gas. And then, like Marco talked about quite a while ago, you stand on the brake in order to get get this S turn out of the way. And it was, it was incredible. And one of the things that I learned during this course or during the during the two day M school is that even in a BMW M car, brake fade is a real thing. And I don't know if you guys noticed this, but particularly in the M5, I think I noticed it the most. And the M6 was not a lot better. After a while, you would stand on the brake and things that were stopping quickly suddenly weren't stopping quite so quickly. Do they not have carbon ceramic brakes on the M5? Not on these, no. Although I award you five bonus points for asking asking the question. No, none of them had carbon ceramic brakes. However, all of the cars, every single one of them were really well appointed. Really, really well appointed. Like some of them had the... How much is the Bang & Olufsen stereo, Marco, on the M5? $3,700. Right. And so half the M5s had this like ridiculous Bang & Olufsen stereo that I don't think any of us turned on not once. I, actually, I tried it just to see the stupid little speaker elevate up in the middle, in the center console. But yeah, it's, it, they, and they had night vision. They had a, a few of them had like all these crazy options that like, there's really not a lot of reason for, uh, for a car that's going to spend the first half or so of its life on a racetrack being thrown around with the radio off there's not a lot of reason for it to have these like thousands of dollars uh, of options on them but for whatever reason they did i don't know why well and i guess it's because they do eventually auction these off and resell them and we talked to the instructors about this briefly and they said we they don't know if the deals on these cars are any good or not and yes as far as they know they do have to disclose exactly how these cars started their lives but also consider, for what it's worth, that these cars get oil changes constantly. They get brake changes constantly. And when I say brake changes, I don't just mean pads. I mean, they get brake fluid changes. They get rotor changes. They get pad changes all the time. And in fact, every time these cars leave the BMW Performance Center, which they do occasionally to go to, say, Road Atlanta or VIR for an event, apparently they basically gut the darn things and put all sorts of new bits on them so that when they're off-site they're pretty much guaranteed to work. Isn't that right? Isn't that what you guys heard? That is what they said. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. So, it was, I don't know, I digress, but it was a very interesting little story. So, like Dave said, we start out in the man corner, and that was a lot about learning how to take a very high-speed, uh, constant radius turn, as well as how to do what they call the compromise corner, which is to say an S-turn. So, you have a corner where you want to come into the apex late, but if you do, that sets you up very poorly for the second corner. So on the first corner, you actually want to apex early in order to better set yourself up for the second corner. That was in the M5. I did not go off the track on that one. After that, we took the M6 on a handling course, which included a corkscrew. 
And I've never been to Laguna Seca, but the the pictures and videos I've seen of Laguna Seca made me think of Laguna Seca's uh, corks or whatever they call it uh, when when we did that. And that was uh, that was incredibly scary, incredibly thrilling, but incredibly scary because as you're going down this hill, there's kind of a mini S turn on the hill itself, and that's the corkscrew. And you can't see a thing when you crest the top of it and point yourself down the hill. And and they say, you know, once you get yourself lined up appropriately, you can stand on the gas, even in an M6, which, again, is a little bit, I would actually argue, overpowered. And so for me... I felt like, it, oh my God, it was so scary doing that because you just have to go on faith that you're not going to screw up. And especially the first time, but even other times, it was scary. Like, I, I'm curious to hear both Marco and Dave, and let's start with Marco. Did you find that to be petrifying or, or, or am I the only one? I was pretty much petrified whenever I was driving the M6. <laughs> I would agree with that, actually. And, 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 you know, and we, we talked about, before we did this episode, we talked about how can we make this uh, interesting to more people than just potential or current BMW M car owners. And so we, we promised ourselves we wouldn't get too much into the details of the particular models um, because who cares? Uh, although we all agree the M3 is by far the best track car, uh, at least the most fun. But I was confident in the M5 because I at least drive one so I know how it feels. Um, and I, I, I kind of respect the amount of power it has because I know how it comes on and so I know how not to overdo it. The M6 is, in many ways, the same car, um, same engine, you know, same, I think, same, same drivetrain. I mean, it, it's a very, very similar car. Uh, but because it's unfamiliar to me, and it also has terrible visibility, <laughs> that's a different... Basically, I was, I was a lot less confident driving the M6 because it, even though I was familiar with how the engine responds, I was not familiar with how the car responds. And... The, in the M6, I came closest to losing control during the during the course, and I also almost plowed over some cones and missed a few turns in the M6. Whereas the <laughs> in the M3 and the M5, I never had that, that I never had those problems. So, so Dave, what did you think of the three cars very briefly, particularly particularly the M6? It generally is like the sort of the boring opinion in that I think the the three was is felt much more in I felt much more in control in the three, and that it it's ability to its power and its agility seemed well matched it's like if i was playing some rpg and i was like rolling dice it's like it was a well balanced <laughs> car to both in terms of you know it's its power matched very well with its agility whereas as you start to get higher up it they started to get very out of whack and i think especially in the six where it felt like you're kind of steering it with a rudder but it's got this huge engine on it. Like it just didn't turn in the way that you, you would necessarily want it to. And the five was a bit of a balance between that, that it was had a lot of power, but it, you could still had reasonable handling. And then in the six, it just felt like it was real. I mean, for me, it was very mismatched in that way. And like it was just, and which made it very awkward to, to sort of to feel like you're actually in control of it rather than it just kind of going where it's wanting. It's it's going to go where it's going to go, and you're just kind of making your requests to it and hoping that it it, it sort of sort of it agrees with you. I felt like the M3 it could have used a smidge more power, but generally speaking, Dave hit it spot on. It was the right amount of power for the right amount of agility. I agree with Marco that the M5, well, it it still felt a little imbalanced. By and large, it was still within reason, the right amount of power for the right amount of chassis. Whereas the M6, I felt 
was way too much power and nowhere near enough chassis. And I never thought in a million years that I would ever say that because as much as we joked during the first season of Neutral and perhaps only season of Neutral that we are all James May, I think I have very Clarkson-like tendencies. And I tend to like power, power, power. And the M6 just had way too much power and in, in not enough chassis behind it. So I'm very I'm I'm surprised. It's the same chassis as the M5, though. So what do you mean when you say not not enough chassis? Like was it the the power putting the car out of kilter? Was it like yes, absolutely pogoing from weight on one side of the car to the other? Was it you know on paper? I would assume that I am dead wrong. That the M5 and the M6 should have behaved approximately the same. I don't know if the wheelbase is a different length. I don't know if it's the weights very different. But regardless, or maybe it's the suspension, as Sam the Geek is mentioning in the chat, but one way or another, something was off about the M6, or maybe it's just that I didn't agree with the M6. Whereas the M5, it felt very heavy. It felt like it resisted a direction change, but it would go with it. It was like, all right, fine. If you really want me to go left with a quickness, I'll go left with a quickness. Okay, fine. I'll go right with a quickness. But geez, would you give me a chance to breathe? Whereas the M6, if you wanted to go left and then right with a quickness, you were probably going to be going left, then right, and then back 180 degrees or 360 degrees around because you're about to put yourself in the spin. It may have just been too much car for you. You know, no, you might be right. The big sedan is like kind of slowing things down to the point. It's kind of like, you know, jet fighter planes that designed to be intentionally unstable so they could change direction quickly. But if, you know, if you if you go yank to the left and yank to the right, then you find yourself having to correct again because now you've gone too far. You'd probably need another two or three weeks, then maybe you'd change your opinion on the in the M6. You're probably right, and I, I bet you anything that that's a very, very, very good point. But whatever the reason was, I felt like the M6 was, was a little bit sketchy. I think it's worth noting that the instructors all agreed, people who do this all the time and have big racing experience, they all agreed that the M3 was the, was the most fun track car. But they also all agreed the M5 was was the one that they would pick to do like a a major thing like a, like a, a a major time lap and the instructors all seem to prefer the M3 for fun and the M5 for high performance. I don't think anybody claimed to prefer the M6 for anything. No, not at all. But that said, I think we should probably leave this topic because it's too specific and who cares? Except us. <laughs> exactly. So in the morning of day two, we talked about the man corner. Then we did the handling course with the corkscrew, which we just talked about, and. I think all of us enjoyed that, although each of us had a different amount of motion sickness at the summation of the uh, handling course in the M6. I think I might have done the best of all of us, but I certainly was feeling it a little bit at the end of it because the course was very short and it was a lot of twisting and turning. And height changes. And height changes, very much so. So then in the in the end of the morning of day two, we then took the M3s back to the big ovular skid pad and did figure eights and power drifts. And uh, I, don't, I don't know, I have a whole lot to say about that. I don't know if you guys do, but it, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, that's I don't actually have a whole lot to say about day two at all, just because it was just like, all right, here's most of the stuff you learn on day one, but more of it, and you have more time on the track to to drive and, and like that. And the instructors were very good; like they know we're all there to drive on the track, so they don't spend a whole lot of time with like with instruction, you know, either either in classroom or otherwise. Like it's really just like we they want to get you on the track and get you as much driving time as possible, and and, and I respect that. Right. Um, so yeah, day two was really just a whole lot of driving more on the track, and it was exhausting, but it was really fun. Yeah, and, and the the best part of day two to me was 
the ver- for us the very beginning of the afternoon. And what they did, as I've been alluding to all this entire show, is they took the entire track and they put it all together and made one massive track over it. When I say they put it all together, what I mean is they took out they they would obstruct us with cones and and tell us you know make rights and make lefts to prevent us from going down the entire big track. And in the end of the second day. They took away all those cones and basically said, have fun. And there was still a track there. There were still obstructions there. But by and large, it was this, it was this humongous track, and they just said, have fun. And so for our group, we started the day – or it started the afternoon, rather, in M3s. And I'm not a terribly good driver, as I've learned over, the, over those two days, and I really learned at the end of day two. But I tell you what, at the – Beginning of the afternoon of day two, when we were in the M3s doing this power lap, I felt more dialed in in that M3 than I did the rest of the time in any car. Now, of course, of course, some of that comes down to the M3 being the same generation as my 335. And so, of course, I feel most acclimated to that car because it's most similar to what I drive every day. That being said, that I had such an unbelievably good time driving that M3 with a quickness, trying to drive the doors off of it around this humongous track. And oh my goodness, it was so much fun. And I'll give Marco and Dave a chance to throw in their two cents. But after the M3, we did the M6 on the same lap and another group took the M3s over. And then finally, at the end of day two, we took the M5s into that same figure eight course and just did some drifts and some timed laps and the the instructor showed us something fun with that, which we'll get to in a minute. But what did you guys think about the power lap? Like, Dave, what did you think about the M3 versus the M6 on those power laps? Yeah, I mean, I think the M3 was a lot more fun to drive in, in a lot of ways. But I think the biggest thing that I took away from th- those big laps, and this was a surprise to me, is that just how exhausting driving that a car in that in that manner is in a way that, you know, each lap was probably only... I don't know, a minute, maybe a minute and a half. It wasn't a huge amount of time, but the, the the sheer exhaustion that you get into and the amount of focus that it takes definitely gave me a whole other kind of level of respect for the people who do actual racing, whether, especially those, like the crazy, like the lawns races and things where they're racing for hours. Because even just after doing it for 20 minutes, it's like I'm, I'm, it was just exhausting mentally. And the whole time, at some point, I have to sort of broke down from being able to just sort of do it with normal concentration to have to start like narrating myself through it. And if you listen on sort of like the in-car microphone, you can just hear me like telling myself what I'm supposed to be doing, trying to essentially be the instructor for just myself to try and keep myself in it. And I had to take a couple breaks even just to be able to do what you're trying to do at that kind of speed you know, you don't have that, you don't have time to think about it. And it was just kind of an intense thing that I was, I didn't really appreciate before just how exhausting that is. You know, in my previous experience, the driving exhausting when you do, you know, a six hour road trip and you get to the end of it and you're just mostly just bored. And it's like that boredom kind of loss of focus rather than a loss of focus just from exhaustion. Yeah. I, I mean, each of these, the M3 and the M6 power laps, we were out for between 20 and 30 minutes. And at the end of it, uh, AF Waller asked in the chat, did you guys sweat a lot? And I'm not sure if he meant that comically or seriously, but I know I did. It was tiring. And I cranked the AC on those cars. And sometimes I had the windows open when appropriate. But 
that being said, even with the ACs in the low 60s, uh, it was it was still hot because you were it was a lot of effort. It was hard. And I don't know, Mar- or, uh, John, I don't know if you've broken a sweat playing Mario Kart, but nice. I can tell you I broke a sweat. <laughs> I broke a sweat driving these hot laps. I mean, it was it was tiring. If you can do these time laps, though, you got to turn the AC off for the extra hundredth of a second. Uh, you know, it, I thought the same thing <laughs> hand on heart. I really honestly did. But it it wasn't a big enough deal, nor was it a big enough difference. Well, none of us are good enough. <laughs> and none of us were good enough to make a difference. And on these power laps, they didn't time us. Be- and I think because they wanted us to have fun and just the specter of somebody behind you in your, in your rear view mirror was enough to get you to kind of overextend your abilities. And I don't think timing people really would have helped that situation at all. Well, and they also, in order to keep spacing, like so that, so that fast people could keep going fast and not be behind somebody slow for a while, they would call people selectively into the pit to just maintain spacing. So a lot of the laps were not complete laps because the pit was like a bypass. Uh, for 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 a short for a short portion of the track, so that you could like reorganize two cars. Like if 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 somebody was on someone else's butt, they would call the front one into the pit, so the rear one could pass it, and and uh, and so right. on. It's fine to just say I was in the pits a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think Marco and I each spent some time in the pits, but I I, I don't think either of us spent a tremendous amount of time there. So we're, we're running long, and I want to wrap up somewhat quickly. But I, I should note that at the end of the second day, there were two different things that happened. So I, made, I, I mentioned earlier that we took the M5s onto the figure eight and did some drifts and some timed laps, and that was fun. And I think Marco beat me somewhat handily on that, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right, Marco? I don't think so. We were very close. The, in, in everything that was timed officially, you and I were, had effectively equal times. Okay. Well, regardless. So then Johan, who was the instructor that we had for that particular portion of the day, said, hey, listen, I'm going to take one of the M5s. It just so happens to be the one that Dave drove out there. And I'm going to drift the entire figure eight. I can take three people with me of the five of you who would like to go. And so I volunteered because I'm lucky enough not to get terribly motion sick. Uh, Marco and Dave thought better of it. And then our other two uh, people uh, decided to go with me. And so uh, Johan, who has set a world record for the longest drift, is that correct? Yes, and it was even on that skid pad. Oh, was it on that skid pad? I didn't catch that. Or one, it's on one of the two skid pads. Okay, well, he set a world record for the longest drift in an M5, is that right? Yep. Or was it an M6? M5? Five. They do everything in the M5s because it's better than the M6. Bam. Mm-hmm. There you go. So anyway, so he th- th- this instructor had set a world record for like a literally 50-mile drift around one of the two skid pads. And he takes the M5 and does a drift in a figure eight. And being in a car with an instructor, watching them do their thing, even when their thing, and I'm doing air quotes here, is driving like an idiot, it is unbelievable. And so we did these figure eights. And then all of a sudden he decides, he says, okay, okay, we're done. And he starts careening directly towards Marco and Dave. And so I don't know, did, did one of you want to jump in and tell the, tell the story from your perspective at this juncture? I, I was record. I was thinking. Of, I think the the moment you're talking about is I was videoing this, so I'm just sitting there looking at my iPhone screen as I'm you know just doing doing a nice. You get some really nice slow mo video of this. It was all very nice. And then you just like the car, just like you start. You sort of have that moment of like he's not 
stopping or turning. He's not stopping or turning. And then you just, if you watch the video, like just all of a sudden you just see like, essentially like the camera down and I'm just you know running backwards as he comes towards <laughs> us and then spins the car around 180 degrees and essentially parks it. Um, yep. Right where we were, right net, right, right in front of where we would have been standing if we hadn't run away screaming. Right. I, I don't know if there's a way to do a, a to paint a correct word picture on this one, but it, it suffice to say he parked the the M5 by doing a drift into exactly where he decided it it needed to stop, and it was unbelievable. It was like the Ace Ventura parking job. I'm sure it appreciates that particular comparison. <laughs> of all the movie scenes where someone skids a car into a parking lot, Ace Ventura. Yes, exactly. Well, that was an awesome parking job. Come on. It was pretty legit. So that was the end of the formal part of the two-day M school. And at this point, they basically said, hey, it's been a blast. You know, here's a bunch of swag that we're giving you for free, but in reality, we all paid for. Um, and you can go about your business. But if you'd like to... We, we, the instructors, will take two people at a time in the M3s, and we'll do a hot lap instructor style. Oh, my goodness. I thought once upon a time I was a decent driver. I took this two-day M school, and I realized I'm at best a mediocre driver. Then I went for a ride with the instructors. So... Marco, I'd like to hear your recap of how this went, and then I'd like to hear Dave's. Even as a even even as a spectator, I'd like to hear what Dave thought. Well, on the way into the cars, the instructors were talking to each other, and and the lead instructor had told the others, and I don't know. I mean, maybe he maybe he says this every time, like to be funny, but he he had told the other instructors, "Hey, let's let's take it easy and and take it pretty clean around the man turn, the you know the biggest turn on the track." Okay. Uh, and so my, I was in I was in the uh, the the back car in in the line, and my instructor Laura was was fairly upset that the car in front of her was not going as fast as she wanted the whole time. So first of all, <laughs> an instructor lap is insane because like you know you think when you're driving it in the exact same car, driving the exact same course, you know thirty minutes earlier, you think that you are pushing the car like to its limits of traction that if you went any faster, you'd skid out. Um, and that's <laughs> sort of true, actually. Well, then you get in the car <laughs> the way they drive it. And then you realize, oh, wow, I had a lot of headroom and oh my God, we're going fast. <laughs> yep. And the funny thing is in this is, so I went twice. I went once with the head instructor, Donnie, and he is a robot. And I mean that in the best possible way. Very, very methodical, very deliberate, and he didn't really get loose much. And when he did, you could tell he was just screwing around doing it for fun, not because it was an error in judgment. Then for the second lap, and I'm going to turn it back to Marco in a second, for the second lap, I was with Derek, who was, by coincidence, directly ahead of Laura and Marco's car. And so Derek was the polar opposite of Donnie in that he was loose the entire time. It's not that he wasn't quick, but he was a very seedier pants, talking the whole time, laughing and joking kind of driver, whereas Donnie was very, by the book, this is how I'm doing it, 
you will hold on and you will enjoy it. Not that Donnie wasn't a great guy. He was extremely awesome. But it, the difference between these two styles was incredible. And so Marco is behind us, unbeknownst to me, while Laura is cursing the fact that Derek isn't going quick enough. So Laura is driving this M3 around with me and me and another guy in the back seat. I'm in the front and another guy's in the back. And uh, <laughs> it, the funny thing was, you know, she was driving this car so, so hard and it, it just seemed effortless. Like we were all like talking in the car as if we were on a road trip together, just talking normally. And we, we even ha- we have it on video because I, I plugged my USB key into it. So I, I recorded her lap with us in the car. And it's hilarious, like how just she obviously does this every day and is not phased at all by it. And we were like, oh, my God, like trying to keep ourselves in the seats from <laughs> from the ridiculous force of turning so quickly. And so after after, you know, a, a very, very fast lap uh, of her not being able to drive as fast as she wanted because the guy in front of her was was uh, not going fast enough. She decides to ignore the directions about taking the big turn cleanly and just does this massive power slide for this massive turn. It, I mean, it, it must have been like a 20-second slide. Oh, yeah. Just this giant, perfectly smooth slide of this whole thing, and then a massive slide into the next thing, and then sliding back right precisely between two cones to get back into the pit lane. And it was, of course, massive cloud of smoke. It was comical. We had a fantastic time. Uh, and then the next lap goes out, and, and I was just watching the next lap. And, of course, the next lap, all of the instructors did the, that same power slide because they, they were not going to be outdone uh, by the one who wanted to have some fun. So then there's this other massive cloud of smoke that we, Dave and I both have on video. And it was a fantastic time because you really realize with, with them driving uh, quite how much headroom you have and quite how much of a skill this is and how far you are from it after just two days. Yep. So, Dave, what did you think in in, in summary, both about the power lap and the, and the whole experience? Um, so, I didn't actually go out on one of any of the hot laps because at this point, the sort of general sense of motion sickness from all the driving that I'd been doing for myself, I thought was sufficient. Before I then got in the car and drove for five and a half hours, and so I <laughs> thought, thought better of I thought better of keeping Marco's car um, to, to to steal it. It's like to to steal a neutral previous title, you know. Vomit ruins everything, and so I just decided <laughs> to keep it as uh, it's like to, to, to keep it clean. And so I just watched from the outside. And the the crazy thing to to realize watching from the outside, I'd watched just the students be doing doing their laps. Oh, you know, for for most for for a couple of days. And you, you it's the strange thing is you from looking on the outside, the cars look like they're they're going quickly, but they're not. They they look it looks looks a lot slower from the outside than it does from the inside. Whereas I think the sort of from these cars, it's like you could tell they were seriously going quickly, um, in a way that you know, it's like your, your your head is turning rapidly as as they fly past you. Um, so you could definitely tell it was a whole it's a whole other level, which I guess makes sense for why they do it you know do it professionally versus us just hobbyists going and doing it. Right now, John, if you were to have gone with us. And I know that you needed to be at home for the Mavericks review. I know you hate travel, even if Marco were to transport you the whole way. But hypothetically, if you, you know, turned on your emotion ship and decided to have a little bit of fun, 
do you find yourself getting motion sick when you are the driver of an automobile or like, in other words, do you think you would have been screwed after this entire event or do you think you would have survived? If any of you felt any motion sickness, I would have been tremendously motion sick. My, <laughs> my threshold is very low and I'm very rarely when I'm driving myself, do I, but occasionally I do like, you know, in stop and go traffic for hours, you know, in a stick shift on Hilly road or even just, you know, like I, it's, I have very low limits. So I guarantee that I would not have, gone on it not not been up to going on this hot lap and in the, the course you described going up and down the, the elevation changes with lots of turns i wouldn't have liked to do that either like yeah I, I would probably miss half of this that's the other thing if i had paid for this thing i'd probably miss half of it as i sat there motionless trying to uh keep my lunch down yeah and the other thing i should note is since you bring up manual transmissions marco and i made a made a bet before the event and he had said, oh, I'm sure that there will be at least one car with a manual transmission. Because well, last said, year there was exactly one. Mm-hmm. And I said, no way. There's no way they would do that. And I was a little disappointed by that when I made that bet because I knew I was going to be right, and I was. But I was disappointed because I thought, man, I'm really – I'm going to want to have a stick, a proper stick shift there. And, and, and I'm really going to miss not having one. And as it turned out, the M3, the M5, and the M6 all had the DCT gearboxes. And now having been through that, I would still personally choose a six-speed, a, a standard transmission for the street any day. And I have not been on a racetrack in a six-speed yet, but I can tell you that for learning how to drive like a race car driver, I am so glad that I didn't have to worry about a clutch or switching gears other than tapping on a flappy paddle. And I don't know, Marco, especially since you have more experience with a manual than, than Dave does, I don't know how you felt, but I'm actually very glad that they didn't have a six-speed, as it turns out. Well, I do have one event that I did with a six-speed, which was last at last year's Lime Rock thing. They had the 1Ms, and they had a little autocross course to do with them. So I did that, but it didn't really count because I was just in second gear almost the entire time. Uh, I would occasionally go up to third on a really on a very fast part, but very very rarely, and that's kind of how it was on this track too. Like on on the big track, we were mostly in second and third, going into fourth like on the biggest straightaways, um, but not even for very long because we weren't really good enough to be that going that fast anyway. So I don't think it matters on a racetrack as much as you think. You know, if you if you drive a stick every day, then it's 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 automatic for you in your head like you're not going to have to think about the gear changes you're just going to do them and so it's not it i don't think it makes a difference either way uh is what i'm saying for you know at least for amateurs like us um i think though going back a second to the motion sick thing i don't usually get motion sickness for any like common situations but i did get motion sick at last year's track event and i did get a little bit motion sick at this one um, last year's from sitting in the back seat of the skid pad when somebody else was skidding out constantly. I would not recommend sitting in the back seat on any skid pad exercise for anybody. And uh, and this time I got a little a little bit sick feeling when we were doing the big elevation change course. And and both times it didn't ruin my day. And I w- I felt better like you know a half hour to an hour later. But um, I know enough about myself now, having done this now twice, to know that. Even though I, I love driving my fast car, um, and even though I love this kind of thing in theory, I don't think I would ever like this hobby enough to actually go and like get time on a track myself outside of these highly instructed, highly structured events. Like 
I don't think I can handle the motion. I wouldn't want to be driving on a track for you know five hours straight with with no brakes uh, or or whatever. Um, certainly, the expense of getting your own time on on most tracks is insane, and uh, and the ones near me are, are certainly no exception. And so I think I'm actually perfectly fine doing this kind of thing every couple of years with friends as we see fit. But I don't think I would want to do a track hobby more often than that. I don't think I can really handle it. And I, I think I'm actually okay with that. Like I, I'm, I'm okay admitting that to myself and, and I guess to the public um, that, yeah, that, that's actually fine. Now, Dave, what do you think? I'm very glad that I did this in terms of obviously coming from the opposite end of the spectrum. It was, it's, it's something that's, it, it's, and honestly, it's, it's one of those interesting things where you, ha- it's, it's an experience that, I guess in some, some people will call it, it's like a once in a lifetime experience. And it probably won't be once in a lifetime. It's the kind of thing I might, maybe I'll do um, at some point later, but it's a, it's very different than what, very different than the norm. And is a very, it's interesting to see a different sort of almost part of yourself in that, that, you know, driving for me typically is about safety and economy in, you know, my entire life. Like that's what, that's essentially what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get from here to there, you know, sit safely and effectively. It was interesting to try that. It's, 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 I'm going through the same motions, you know, my hands are still on a wheel, my feet are on pedals, but doing it for a completely different goal and seeing how different that feels and seeing how, you react to that by putting yourself into that situation, and you know it's it's definitely not for me in terms of you know as as a hobby or something that I would do in a long ter- long term, both from sort of a little bit of motion sickness and those types of things, but also just it's a you know it's 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 a skill that I don't think I naturally have, nor do I think in, enjoyed to a, to a, to a sufficient degree that I would be able to put in the you know the hours and hours of time and and the you know, the just piles of money that it would take to get good at. But it's very fun to go out and try it and to see what that's like so that now I kind of have a sense that if I sit down and watch a Top Gear episode or I watch a, an F1 race on TV or something like that, I kind of know what's going on at least at a vague level that I, that I just didn't really appreciate before. Then when I see someone doing something, while I don't think I could do it myself, I know just how difficult it is um, and that's you know that, that's kind of fun, and that's kind of it's 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 it's, it's you know rare and rarer these days to be able to, to know something about yourself that you didn't before, and it's kind of fun to go off and explore that. Yeah. Now, John, which one of the three of us do you reckon was the first to drive Marco's M5 subsequent to the two day M school? Uh, which one of the three of you? Hmm. It depends on how tired Marco was if he wanted to be chauffeured back to <laughs> where he was going. I'm assuming, I would assume Marco was the one, but he might have said, oh, I'm too tired. Why don't you guys drive? No, actually, as it turned out, so I, I've talked about this quickly in the past. Uh, I wear weirdo hard contact lenses, which are very rough to have on for many, 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 many hours at once. And so I said to Marco and Dave, hey, listen, you know, my eyes are going to get really cranky not too long from now because we were leaving the school at five or six o'clock in the evening. And so I volunteered to take the first leg. And this is pretty much entirely unremarkable, except that when we got on Interstate 85, I found a hole right after we got on the interstate. And so I got left very casually and very safely, as opposed to my normal approach as a BMW driver. And I wanted to collapse the space in front of me. And so I wouldn't say I stood on the gas, but I definitely got on the gas. And Marco has his 
speed warning settings set the same way I do, which is 85 miles an hour. And, and BMWs tend to overcompensate, and so 85 miles an hour indicated is really about 80 miles an hour. And so I collapse the space in front of me, and all of, a, all of a sudden I hear, and I realize, oh, God, I have driven for two straight days without a speed limit anywhere in sight. And I just did about 90 or 100 trying to collapse onto, onto the car in front of me, which I can't do anymore. And I think for all three of us, it was a little bit of an adjustment going back to driving like a civilized human being. Dave, how hard was it for you and your Corolla to, to drive uh, <laughs> normally? It, it 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 was fine. Uh, I, I was able to handle it. But I will say, I, since driving since, I do think my driving style has changed slightly. That I think I'm, the way that I'm driving is just a slight, a little bit more conscious and precise, which is kind of fun to to see, even just applied to my tiny little Corolla that I I, dri- I, you know, I barely drive. But you know, it, it definitely was strange having spent five five or six days straight driving in M cars consistently, and then immediately after I got home, I had to make a quick run to the UPS store to return some of the cameras I'd rented for the trip. And it's like getting in my Corolla and turning it on and there being comparatively no noise when you turn the engine on, you know, it just turned on rather than there being this like, it's comparatively no engine. Yeah, well, exactly. (laughs) There's just, there's no, there's no low bassy kind of booming sound that that comes out of it. It's like, all right, I'm home again. (laughs) (laughs) I would say also, and, and this, I don't know how well this is going to go over with this audience. Well, who, who are we kidding? Who's listening? But um, <laughs> I think, you know, every time I, I drive, every time I do something like this, which is not very often, but where I, where I see like what the M cars can do, it becomes more clear to me that I really don't need to be driving one. That <laughs> in my, in my day-to-day life, like my car is a complete waste of all that power in my day-to-day life. Because, you know, ideally if you get an M car, if it spends any time in sixth or seventh gear, you're probably doing it wrong. In in retrospect, I think if they put a decent transmission in the 550X drive, I would probably be perfectly happy in that car. However, they don't put a decent transmission in it, so I <laughs> so I, I wouldn't be. You know, speaking of uh, motion sickness and uh, powerful cars being wasted on people, when I was very young, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And then in fifth grade, we went on a whale watch off of Montauk Point, and I stopped wanting to be a fighter pilot because I found out I get terribly motion sick. And that's kind of, you know, out of the question if you're a fighter pilot. And so that also ruled out high-performance cars. And even though I'd read car magazines, you know, my whole life, I always knew that, you know, I could never actually drive one of these cars like it's meant to be driven. However, I maintain that I still want my Ferrari. I was going to ask. Even though I will never be able to drive it the way it's meant to be driven, I want it to drive it you know, stupidly, briefly, so that I don't get sick, and because it's a work of art. So uh, I, I don't, I mean, Marco can make his decision, but I I would still, if I had the means, end up getting a car that is totally wasted on me, the same way I'm about to get a computer, a Mac Pro, that's pretty much going to be totally wasted on me. I mean, you know, ridiculous dual workstation-class GPUs to play video games kind of in a mediocre manner. Uh, <laughs> I... I I think that's perfectly fine. If that's what you want to spend your money on, uh, go for it. But I've always known that even though what I would end up with, even though I kind of like the philosophy of BMW, is I would end up with my Ferrari and like a Mercedes S Class, and mostly I would drive the <laughs> mostly I would drive the Mercedes, and then you know on weekends or vacations or whatever, dr- take the Ferrari out for brief stints. And yes, it would be totally wasted, but uh, I actually I would be preserving its resale value. Let's think of it that way. <laughs> and on that bombshell, I think we're done. Oh, goodness. Anything else, gentlemen? 
I think that's it. I mean, Dave, any closing comments on, uh, I guess you already gave them, but any closing comments on the experience as a whole and, and how this has changed you as a person? Uh, I think mostly just thanks to you guys for coming along on this ride with me. I know it didn't take that much convincing, but um, it was definitely it was a lot more fun than I think if I'd ever done something like this myself. So I'm definitely got it worked out to do it with um, to do it with other people. But yeah, I definitely would recommend it to somebody else. And it was just a lot of fun to, to to try something that's that's so different to see how you react to it, and then to know. Well, you know, it's like it's like that's like a little box you can check and say like, yeah, I've driven car, I've driven you know fast cars quickly rather than just slow cars slowly. All right. Well, thank you for turning thirty. And uh, when did you say you're placing the order for your three twenty eight? I'm still on the fence about that. My Corolla is doing just <laughs> fine. We should we should say before we close the show that Casey and I were plotting via IM uh, like um, two months ago about what kind of car we're going to convince Dave to buy. Because we knew that we probably couldn't get him to a 335. That would be too much of a jump. He probably wouldn't go for that. We also know that we don't want him buying the 320 because that's just stupid. Uh, <laughs> my position, on, quickly, my position on 320 is that uh, it is a little bit cheaper, but it's still not a cheap car. It is not any lighter weight or meaningfully more fuel efficient than the 328. So why why bother getting the 320? except to save some money on a not-cheap car. Why not spend the extra little bit of money to get 328, which is a way nicer car than the 320? Uh, so we were, we, we've were we been plotting to convince Dave to buy the 328 uh, as, as his Corolla replacement, uh, even though the Corolla doesn't need to be replaced. Uh, technically, um, idealistically, it does. And, or, you know, <laughs> philosophically, it needs to be replaced. So... Uh, Everyone on the internet, please convince underscore David Smith to buy a three twenty eight. You can come with me, Dave, and test drive a stick shift Accord. You'll like it. Sounds perfect. I think we can probably get three or four of those for the cost of it. That's right. You can have you can have one for each day of the week instead of the three twenty eight. You can have your day Accord and your night Accord. <laughs> oh yeah. God! All right, are we done now? Yeah, I think that's it. Thanks a lot, listeners, for tolerating all this. Yeah, and uh, no guarantees about any other neutrals, but thanks for uh, listening to this little one-off special. So thanks, everybody. Wait, wait, your birthday's New Year's Eve? Yes. Did I know that? I don't think I knew that. How about that? That must make for an interesting celebration every year. (laughs) See if you can figure out what my celebration is like every year. (laughs) You going to bed early? Sprite. Sprite yeah, exactly. going to bed early. Yeah, no, it's the it's the best. Everyone else is Two out. Two sprites. Everyone else is out partying, and I can just Two go to bed. <laughs> Marco, you're an awesome. Am I right? Yes. You do that. No, I don't have sprite outside of uh, the restaurants. That, well, that's we used, right. <laughs> we used to do the. We don't have soda in the house at all. We used to do the thing where you get to like pick where you want to pick where you want to go out on your birthday. You know, like your family. You know, when you're a kid, uh, whichever restaurant you want to go to, you'll go out to. But I could never do that because you can't get into a restaurant, you know, on New Year's Eve unless you reserve like, you know, weeks in advance and we never would. So we'd always have to have my birthday dinner on a day other than my actual birthday because it's just impossible to eat out that night. It's kind of sad. I'm sorry. I'm still. It's like, it's like your fighter pilot dream being crushed. This has been very sad. Yeah, who, who invited you onto this episode? There are, there are good <laughs> things about my birthday being close to Christmas because that meant that I could double up birthday and Christmas and get the one big gift that I want, which in my case is get ready, young people, a $450 800K floppy drive. Nice. Ooh, nice. Combine birthday. If I combine birthday and Christmas and, and give you $100 of my own money, can I get a $450 floppy drive? Yes. Yes, I can.